In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a very special guest here at uh, the five o'clock service. Dr. R.T. Kendall is going to be teaching here. So you'll find the information there in the revival time. So that's not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. And um, we're looking at the topic of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the best books that you can get on the Sermon on the Mount is by Dr. R.T. Kendall himself, an excellent book, and I have used it so much in uh, bringing this um, series to you. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, and the title of the uh, sermon today is The Lord's Prayer, The Lord's Prayer. And one of the important things about having Bible series like this is that we begin to see things in context. I've already said many times that the problem is with the Sermon on the Mount is that often preachers and teachers don't treat it as a sermon as a whole. They just dive into one verse or one section and teach it without reference to the other verses that are around it. I wouldn't want somebody to do that to any of my sermons. I'd want people to understand that what I'm saying in my sermon is linked to the introduction, the, the, the middle section, the conclusion. I wouldn't want my words to be taken out of context. Many, many, many times, uh, verses in the Sermon on the Mount are taken out of context. and People totally misunderstand them because they fail to place them back in the context of the whole. Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount probably over a period of three or four days. And it's important to understand the context of each section. Of course, he begins with the Beatitudes. And it's been my habit to read those because the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is illustrations and examples of this type of person with these type of characteristics that I'm about to read to you right now. From chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the character of the spirit-filled born-again Christian. As we go right through Sermon on the Mount, and we have been, and we look at all the different aspects of, you know, uh, love, your, love your enemy, all these things. None of the principles and examples of the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, can be done by people that aren't born again. And it's interesting how many politicians will quote little bits from the Sermon on the Mount, non-Christian politicians, but of course you see they're missing the point. This is the spirit-filled lifestyle. The Sermon on the Mount is an illustration of walking in the spirit. You know of the fruit of the spirit? In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Well, what we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount is a description of somebody with the fruit of the Spirit. But you see, when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, or even as we read, these characteristics of a Spirit-filled Christian, the Beatitudes, it's great to read, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's great to read, um, blessed are the merciful. 
It's great to hear the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. But what does that look like in real life? What, how, how, how does somebody that we've just read, in the, how do they deal with enemies? How, how do they deal with the heart issues? How do they deal with lust? How do they deal with anger? How do they deal with giving? How do they deal... How, what, Jesus, what, what does the beatitude person or the man or woman with the fruit of the Spirit... What would they look like in daily life? And you know, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is simply that. Illustrations and examples, not new laws. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. You don't take the examples and make them into new laws. If you made them into new laws, that means every single time that someone uh, uh, sues you for your for your, 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 your garment, you have to give them your coat too. Every single time. No, it's not new laws. It's principles. It's examples of everyday life and how you would deal with them as a spirit-filled Christian. We looked at the key verse in chapter 5. And I don't make excuses for going over this week after week. Because by the end of it, you'll have learnt. You'll have learnt. If I only covered the general things once, many of you would have forgotten and some of you are new. But by the time you've gone through this series, you will not forget the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Because I'm drilling it into you. And that, that's important. It's important. Otherwise, you know. Uh, so it's good to go over things again and again. And, and I make no apology over it. And uh, we looked in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of uh, that chapter 5 is examples of the righteousness of the Pharisees, which was external. I haven't got time to go through the examples, but, but you know, the Pharisee says, well, I don't commit murder. He wouldn't actually commit murder, the external act. But in his heart, he was full of anger. He was murdering people's reputations. He was destroying them because of the anger of his heart. Pharisee might not actually physically commit adultery, but in his heart, he was full of adultery. And Jesus was saying, the righteousness that I'm looking at is a heart righteousness. It's God working on the inside. It's the motives of your heart. And the heart righteousness, that's what exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, not external. He said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look so pure, so clean, so white, so wonderful. But on the inside, you're dead men's bones. And the rest of chapter 5 is looking at examples of Pharisees and religious ways of dealing with things and heart ways of dealing with things. It brought us into um, chapter 6. And I said that chapter 6 still deals with the issues of Pharisaism and heart righteousness. But chapter 6 could also be entitled, Walking with the Father. Because how does somebody that, that does these actions that we see in chapter 5, how, how, how can they love their enemy? How if, if someone slaps them on one cheek, can they have the attitude to turn the other cheek? Because if you keep sl sl slapping me on my cheeks, I'm going to stop you sooner or later. Do you understand? It's not a law. It's a principle. It's a heart principle. How, how are we going to have the attitude where we are non-defensive, where we are 
We are not trying to manipulate situations, but we're trusting in the Father. In other words, how do we live life with these principles? I say we live life by living in the conscious presence of the Father. In summary, I, I gave an example of the time when I had a very difficult meeting with somebody. And I thought this could turn very bad. This could be turned very bad on both sides. And I was concerned about it. And I was praying over it. And I felt the Holy Spirit and the Father speak to me and just said, you know what? In this difficult situation, you're not going to lose your cool. You're not going to say the wrong thing. When you answer, when you talk, it's not that you're responding to the person. Do it in response to the fact that your father's there. Make sure that your words, reactions, responses are pleasing to the father. So I went into that meeting and uh, I was with that person and it went very well, I think because of these principles, because I was conscious that the father was there. And I thought, is this what the father would have me say? You understand what I'm saying? And so that's what we're looking. And then we get to this place of giving and how in chapter um, 6, the way that the Pharisees gave was to get their reward on earth. Now we're beginning to look at rewards and how the Pharisee, the outward righteousness, is always looking for rewards from men or women. So the idea is, is that um, you do your good works and everybody applauds you. And the Pharisee spirit is one that seeks honor from men. It, the Pharisee does things so that you will turn around and say, what a great man or woman of God. And is motivated by the applause or honor of those around them. That's what the, so when they give, they want people to notice that they give. Uh, when, when they uh, do charitable deeds... They blow their own trumpets there in verse 2. They blow their own trumpets. And God says, you know, if you're doing it for other people, that's your reward. That's your reward. But don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing when you're giving. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The Christian life, the power of the Christian life is what goes on in the secret place. In other words, who you are when no one's around. Because when no one's around, that's who you really are. That's who you really are. Your righteousness is, is what you are when you don't have to be anything, do anything. When it's only the Father and you. That's when we see how righteous we are, aren't we? I mean, there's aspects of your life that behind the scenes you wouldn't like us to see today. There's aspects of my life that I wouldn't be that happy about if they were revealed to you. You know what I'm saying? We're works in progress, true? But I haven't seen in most of your life the bits you don't want to see. Why? Because it's hidden from me, true? And there may be aspects, there will be aspects of my life that, that aren't where they should be that you haven't seen. And I don't want you to see. That's why you've not seen them. But God the Father sees them all. So the spirituality where it's just God and the Father, that's who we really are. And, and that's wonderful because that's where we can work on. So often we put our energy into how we're perceived by other people. That's important. But so often it's how am I seen? How am I looked? Am I accepted? How am I seen by other people? But really our focus should be how am I seen by the Father? Let's start focusing on the hidden place. 
Because what, what often takes place is this, is that someone will work on how they're seen by other people in the public place, in the church place, and even the cell place, on how they're perceived. And then it's almost like when they go home, it's like they clock out. Oh, now I can do whatever I want, be whoever I want. There's no one around here that knows. I can watch whatever I want. You know what I'm saying? Drink whatever I want, smoke whatever I want. I'm not saying that anybody does that. I'm just using those as sort of things that are possible, aren't they? Or attitudes often in the family, you know, um, often, you know, <laughs> you, you, get, you get a couple at church and, you know, they look like the perfect couple. They look like, in public, in church, they look like the perfect couple, but you don't know what goes on at home. The shouting, the rage. Or the family, the family comes to church, they're there with the children, the children look lovely, everything looks, the, the parents look loving, but when they're at home, you don't know what goes on. True? Isn't it true that in family life, very often people don't know what goes on in family life? True? And, and it's none of their business either. But what I'm saying is, it's that hidden place where really, it's only the father, if you know what I mean. The private place, that's where it really matters. But so often in Christianity, people think it's the public place. It's what happens on the platform. It's what, what happens in the team. It's what happens in the prayer meeting. And Jesus is dealing with this. And he comes to prayer in verse 5, and he says, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray. They love to pray, standing in synagogues, on corners. In other words, again, their prayer is how it's perceived by others. It's like they're praying, but their reward, and Jesus says they have their reward, their reward is the applause from other people. That's their reward. But Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. In other words, there's no one there. There's no one there to applaud you. There's no one there to say how holy you are. There's no one there. There is nobody to give you a reward. There is no motivation in the secret place where there's nobody else. There's no motivation to please anybody else because nobody else is there. Unless, of course, you go in and some people are like this. They go, oh, I've been in the secret place this month I have been in the secret place for hours. Well, it's not secret anymore. And you've just got your reward. Do you know what I'm saying? It's funny how we deal with it. And uh, he says, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And that's, people, that's when people are praying without connecting. Praying, just praying, praying, praying. And you can do it in many ways, Pentecostal ways, Church of England ways. It doesn't matter what tradition we're from. You can pray without connecting. And sometimes you can hear somebody and they're praying and you think, you know, they're not connected. And often I think, do you know what? If you spoke to me like that, I'd be saying, hello, I'm, I, I'm, you know. And, 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 I, and I made the illustration, although God sees the heart. I'm not saying you have... It's, it's your style and everything. Not, but you know, when someone, someone who talks normally, then suddenly praying, they're going, Father God, just thank you, Father God, for everything. Father God, thank you, Father God, for the Olympics. Father God, thank you, Father God, for the Father... Yeah. Do you, know, what, what, do you think he's got attention deficit order or something? <laughs> Father God, what? Father God, oh, you have to keep calling him back because he's like not listening. Father God, no, Father God. And, and God sees the heart. But I'm just saying, why would you pray like that? If you were speaking to me... Uh, and Bruce, and, and Bruce, I've got to tell you this story, Bruce. It's an amazing story, Bruce. Bruce, it's about what happened to me yesterday, Bruce. You're listening to me, Bruce. Bruce, it's incredible. Bruce. I said, shut up. I am listening. Can't you see? Eye contact. In other words, connection. 
Again, God sees the heart. I'm not criticizing people that from their heart are just repeating father and father. I'm using it as an illustration. But they ought to grow in their prayer, hadn't they? And the repetition. And then verse 8, he says, Do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore pray. pray. And we come to the Lord's Prayer. And I haven't got time. We could do a whole series on the Lord's Prayer, couldn't we? So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to highlight the importance of the Lord's Prayer today. That's as much as this series uh, requires. Now, the Lord's Prayer is here. And, and what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, this is the type of prayer that you should pray in the secret place. This is the type of prayer that God wants. Some people, sometimes they say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know, what, where do I start? Uh, God, um, help me. <laughs> well, that's a good start, isn't it? Help me. But, I, you know, what, what shall I pray about? And sometimes people struggle in their prayer life. They get bored. Or they, they don't know where they're going. Or they're just like throwing up this prayer or that prayer. And they're sort of like, I've got no, I've got no uh, format for my prayer life. I don't know where I'm going. I need some help. Well, here Jesus says, this manner I want you to pray. Now, we also find that Jesus often taught this basic prayer as a framework of how to pray. In Luke chapter 11, verse 2, Luke chapter 11, verse 2, the disciples said, Lord, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus, again, gave a very similar form of the Lord's Prayer. So I think that demonstrates that Jesus in his three-year teaching ministry, when he taught on prayer, would often give versions of the Lord's Prayer to people to say, you want to know how to pray? Well, this is how I encourage you to pray. And it's in the context, remember, of not only teaching to pray here, but also in criticizing and dealing with the Pharisaic outward prayer. The prayer that gets attention from others, but not from God. And it's interesting, although he's just spoken about praying in the prayer closet, and I believe that this prayer is for that, he does start the prayer by saying, Our Father in heaven. You might have thought, might you, if this is a private prayer, that you would go and you'd say, My Father in heaven. But it's Our Father in heaven. I think this tells us two things. Number one, I believe we can share this prayer together. I think it is good, and we will finish today by saying the Lord's Prayer together. I think it's a powerful thing. I remember uh, in, in my days, I was blessed to go to a Church of England school, infant and senior, very blessed. And we used to say the Our Father prayer and the grace, and it was very powerful. We used to do it together, and, and, I, and there was something powerful. It wasn't about impressing one another. It was a corporate act of prayer, and I think that the Our Father can be used as a corporate um, act of prayer. I don't, I'm not like those that say, no, it's only for the private place. But it, Our Father, so we can say it together, but also it shows that even in the private place, we're still part of the body. That, that when you go to pray, it's not my father, it's our father. We're right at the beginning of the prayer, we understand who we are, we're part of a family. And in Western Christianity today, it is more my father. My father. In other words, me. 
what my father can do for me. It's me and God. It's me and God and me exercising faith for my things. And you exercise faith for your things. And I'll do mine with my father and you do it with your father. But my father, me, 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 our father. Isn't that great? You talk about your personal prayer life. And the first thing that we do is say, our father. And the aim of this prayer is that you're heard by the father. The aim, Jesus says, he knows the things before you ask him. This prayer from the heart, you will be heard by the Father. And um, it's interesting, though, having said that we can use this corporately and publicly, and I believe we should, that in verse 7 it says, don't use vain repetitions. And it's funny how that in some uh, traditions of the church, that's exactly what they do with the Lord's Prayer. You know, a couple of verses, don't do vain repetitions. And yet, in some traditions, uh, you get sent away by the leader and said, ten, ten Lord's prayers. Ten Hail Marys. Who's ever, who's ever gone away with having to say ten Lord's prayers? Naughty people. You must have done something naughty to be given that. So, and what did you do when you were a kid? And I, got, I got, had many Catholic uh, friends as, as, a, as a child because the Catholic school and the... Church of England school were next to each other and we had joint six forms. And, the, and you go to confession, you get how many Our Fathers, ten Our Fathers. What do you do? Do, do you do it from the heart? No. Our Father, on heaven, how are you in name? Amen. Yeah. Our Lady full of grace, when you're on death. Amen. Don't you? you get through it. You're not even vain repetition. It's classic, isn't it? But of course we have our own vain repetitions in Pentecostalism as well. Haven't got time to go into that. We know what they are. So, this, and, and, and the good thing, the amazing thing about this prayer is that when we think about praying, often we think about our needs. But the wonderful thing about the pattern of this prayer is that there's two aspects of the Lord's Prayer. The first is about God's interests. Focuses on God and his interests. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So the first roughly half of the prayer. Is to do with God. God's honor. God's needs. If I can use the word God's needs. God focusing on his interests. And then the second session comes. And gives us the petitions. For us to ask the Father for our needs. And um, as we go through these, yes, you can pray this prayer right through, and I often do. Or on my wall in my office, I've got this lovely, like, wooden cross, and, and it's made with strips and everything, and on it is the Lord's Prayer. And I often look at that and say it. I like it. But the Lord's Prayer is not just to be said as a prayer. It can be said as a prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is a template for what you do in the secret place or what you do with others around you. You can pray the Lord's Prayer with you. It's, um, it's like every sentence or section is a sort of door into a whole area of prayer. So you can take one of the aspects of the Lord's Prayer and you can, you can be there for hours if, 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 need, if need be. And the first thing, of course, is our Father in heaven. 
Again, we could teach a whole series on this. We could do every line every week. It's not my intention. I'm just highlighting things for that. R.T. Kendall has written a book on the Lord's Prayer, actually, uh, which, is, which is very good. If you really want to follow through on this, they have it in the bookshop. It starts with Our Father in Heaven. And we said that this chapter 6 is talking about walking with the Father. So the first thing we recognize is that he's our Father. And he's in heaven. I know it's obvious, but it's powerful. It doesn't start, notice, with, God, I'm a miserable sinner. Please forgive my sins that I may approach you. It doesn't start with that. Later on, we deal with the sin issue, don't we? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. But many, many Christians would put that at the front. Well, before you pray and call him Father... You better make sure you're saved today. You better repent and get all that sin out before you approach the holy God. So ask him to forgive your sins and make sure you've repented of everything and make you sure you've forgiven everybody or you can't speak to the Father. But that comes later in the prayer. Isn't it wonderful to know that whatever state or situation you're in, he's still your Father. He's still your Father. That means you don't have to dress yourself up, clean yourself up, get to a certain state of righteousness before you can speak to the Father. All you have to do is say, Father. I mean, remember the, uh, the young boy the, that ran away with his inheritance, the prodigal son? And he's thinking, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say, I am not worthy to be your son. Receive me back as a slave because of my sin. And he was rehearsing all that type of religious stuff. And he's rehearsing it. But his father's looking out far off from the house. Sees him from afar. Runs up to him before dealing with any of the issues that needed to be dealt with. And just threw his arms around him and said, son. Son. My son. And accepted him totally. He didn't have to go through all those things. And also, uh, notice that God is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. It remi- that helps us see things in context. Because sometimes in life we find it hard to see the wood for the trees. Sometimes things are coming so fast and furious in our life. The pressures are such. Or the difficulties are such. And we feel like grasshoppers amongst giants and we're wondering how we're going to get through how I'm going to get through that day how, you know everything seems it looks like the devil's winning and we remember wait my father is in heaven he is in heaven he's in charge he sees things from a heavenly perspective one of the biggest challenges in prayer is to see things from a heavenly pr- perspective Otherwise, what we can do in our prayer, if we're not careful, is we just pray things as it is. We just say, as it is on earth. As it is on earth. And the Father says, I'm looking from heaven. Ephesians says that we are seated with him far above every principality, every power, every earthly power, every circumstances that can be named. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And so we need to pray from that position. We need to remember that when it feels difficult and overwhelming, we need to just get the bird's eye view. Do you hear what I'm saying? We've got to soar like an eagle 
and realize that from heaven, it's not as bad as it looks. Not as bad as it looks. From heaven. And then it moves on to say, hallowed or holy is your name. Do you know what that does? That, that puts us in our place. All right, he's our father right at the beginning. I mean, he could have shown it. He could have said, Lord of hosts, hallowed be your name. He could have said, El Shaddai, hallowed be your name. But Jesus chose father, the intimate word of father and everything that comes along with that. But hallowed be your name. That puts us in context, that, that we have the familiarity at the beginning, but we also remember who he is. Now, when you talk about someone's name, you're talking about two things. You're talking about their identity and their reputation. So if someone speaks a name of somebody that you know, immediately you think of them and their identity, their character, who they are. But also you think of their reputation. Oh yeah, I've heard of so-and-so. I've heard there are this or there are that or they're good at the other. And so when we say the name, hallowed be their name, we're talking about the knowledge of God and the reputation of God and the glory of God. We're also talking about accountability to that name. We're saying, you're my father, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? It means I need to live in the light of who you are. Some living in the secret place again. It's like, what, you can do whatever you do in public, that's for the public. Hear what I'm saying? We've discussed that. Your public face. But to revere the name of the Father, you respect him when there's no one there to see you respect him. That's what God is looking at. And then from that place where nobody can see that you're respecting him but him, you get your reward. And actually that trains you to deal with the public face. You become authentic. Because who you are in the secret place, as you begin to hallowed be your name, you know, I could do that, Lord, and nobody would ever know. I could, I could act in that way. And nobody would ever know, but you know. So hallowed be, the, be your name. Hallowed be your name. I'm going to act. Your name is enough for me to act in the right way, even though I could get away with it with everybody else. It's accountability to the name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again. It's all about God here, isn't it? Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Remember Jesus praying that in the Garden of Gethsemane? Perhaps he was in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps he was praying elements of the Lord's Prayer. We don't know in the Garden of Gethsemane. And perhaps, I mean, he would never have to say, forgive me my debts, Father, but maybe he was saying, Lord, Father, not your will, not my will, sorry, but yours be done. And if Jesus could do that. And so that means that when we're praying, remember you can take this and, uh, and, and use this as a whole area of praying. When you're praying, your kingdom come. There's so many, your kingdom come in my life. Your kingdom come in the church life. You see, sometimes we don't know what to pray for people, but you can pray the Lord's Prayer. Father, I pray for our senior minister and his wife, Colin and Amanda. What are you going to pray for? Um, that your will will be done in their lives. 
that your kingdom would come in their life. Lord, I pray for Kensington Temple that your will be done. That your kingdom come. On earth as it is in heaven. That recognizes that there is a disparity between the will of God in heaven and the will of God on earth. There is a disparity. You know, we look around and we say, sometimes we say, I can't believe what's happening. How can God allow that to happen? Well, he doesn't want it to happen. It's not his will. Not everything that happens on earth is God's will. Otherwise, you'd never have to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You get some Christians that simply think that everything that happens must be God's will. That they're in an extreme. They just, well, oh, well, it must, it's God, must be God's will. Sickness comes. Well, it must be God's will. You know, ruin comes. Well, it must be God's will. Must be God's judgment. Must be God's will. And so everything that happens, they simply say, ah, must be God's will. But we find in this passage, there are many, many things in our lives, experiences, and world that are not God's will. And we need to pray. You see, the thing is about this, if we don't pray these things, we can't expect to get these things. James says, look, it's, a, it's so simple, but it's so profound. You don't get because you don't ask. Then he goes on to, when you ask, you've got the wrong motives, but we don't need to go. You don't get because you don't ask. I wonder how much the church in Britain could have if it asked. I wonder how much more of the will of the Lord we could see in our nation if we prayed it. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And, and God shows us by his word his will in many circumstances. We can go to the word and we can say, Lord, in your word it says that it's your will that people get saved. And not enough are getting saved. So your will be done that people are saved in heaven. Let's see that will on earth. And we begin to pray in that line of prayer that God's will for people to be saved would come to pass. And as I said, if we don't pray it, we can't expect it. Now, God's sovereign can do whatever he wants, but he said to us, I want to do it through you. I want to do it through you. We can bridge the gap between heaven and earth. We can bring heaven's will and heaven's power and God's will to earth by praying it. We can be part of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This is our needs. We're moving now from God's interests to our interests. And there we are. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Trusting that our source comes from the Father. This is a really big lesson to learn. That we go to the Father for provision. The Father's the one that provides the job. The Father's the one that provides for us. He can provide in many different ways. The Father, Father, give us this day our daily bread. Later on we're going to talk about walking with the Father and, and not worrying. Not worrying like a child doesn't worry in his father's or her father's presence, a good father anyway, because they know that the father's looking after the meals. The father's looking after the accommodation. The father's looking after the clothes. My dad's buying me the stuff. I don't need to worry about it. If I worried about it, he'd be like, what's the matter? Have you ever gone without? God is in charge. We'll come back to that, walking with the father. And then we get this place. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive uh, those that have sinned against us. Well, 
Think about that. Some people think, ah, you see, if you don't forgive people's sins, God won't forgive your sins and you're not saved. That's how some people teach this. Utter nonsense. You already know that you're saved. You've already said, our Father. Before you've even deal, dealt with the sin issue in your life, you've called him Father. Now, you can't, in that teaching, you can't call him Father unless you've dealt with your sins. <laughs> nonsense. This is not talking about whether you're in heaven or not, or saying that if you don't forgive somebody, that you're going to hell. Jesus does say, doesn't he, that we should forgive others for our Heavenly Father to forgive us. He does say that, doesn't he? But he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about walking in communion and harmony. It's the, let me take you back. Remember, all this, this prayer is the prayer that the beatitude person would pray, isn't it? And what type of beatitude person is? One of the beatitudes is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive. So, if you're merciful, you are a candidate to receive mercy. But if you're not merciful, you're not going to get the mercy that the merciful receive. It's like, judge not, lest you be judged. Because with the measure you judge, so shall you be judged. So in other words, the way that you treat others is, 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 is the way that God may treat you. You know what I'm saying? So if you're hard on other people, then God may have a lesson to teach you. He'll show you. Because much has been forgiven you, why won't you forgive others? This is relational. And it's, if we are not in the midst of dealing with forgiving others, then we're putting up blockages to our relationship with God. Because you can have a good relationship with your father, can't you? Your, your, if you have an earthly father alive, you can have a good relationship with your earthly father, can't you? Or a bad relationship with your earthly father. But he's still your earthly father. Even if he's disowned you, he's still your earthly You hear what I'm saying? So this is what this is talking about, talking about the horizontal, the dealing with others, but knowing that, that God says this, uh, don't say that you, that you love God when you hate your brother. So God's test for our spirituality, this, this gets the Western mindset every time. You say, are you spiritual? Well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying. No, no, no. Are you spiritual? Well, you know, I go to church. No, the first measure of spirituality is how are you treating others? <laughs> Don't say you love God when you hate your brother. The first test of how spiritual you are is how you treat others. That's the first test. Not how much you read your Bible, not how much you speak in tongues. Things are important. God's first question to you, if you were to say, God, how am I doing? He'd say, well, let's see how you're treating people. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is... The fulfillment of the law. Interesting, isn't it? And so this is covered in the Lord's And do not lead us into temptation. This phrase can be translated temptation, test, or trial. Well, this is interesting because we know that trials will come. In fact, James says, consider it all joy when various trials come. But this isn't talking about the trial that makes us stronger. The trial that tests our faith. 
the trial that makes us mature and lacking in nothing that James is talking about. This isn't talking about that type of trial, that type of test, which is ultimately for our good that makes us stronger and gives glory to God. This is talking about the test or trial that God never wanted us to go through. The test or trial that God never wants. And of course, God never tempts us. We're tempted by our own sinful lusts. So this test, this temptation, this trial that we're praying, we're not saying, Lord, let there be no test, because tests are going to come. Otherwise, you'll never mature. Consider it all joy when tests come. It's not talking about that. It can't be. We're saying, please don't. James would not pray, please, Lord, don't bring me any of the tests that will make me strong and cause me to prosper. It's not that test. So this test must be the test or trial that God never... Have you ever been through something and you look back and you say, Do you know what? I never needed to go through that. In other words, I look at things in my life, tests and trials. Some of them, many of them were unwelcome. But when I've gone through them, I look back and I go, Do you know what? God's hand was in that. God's hand. I never want to go through that trial again. But I'm glad I've gone through it. Why? I'm stronger. I gave more glory to God. I'm fitter. That trial has purified me. I'm more pure in my gold. My faith is stronger. And I look back, might not want to go through it again, but I understand that that trial God allowed for me to grow. You know what I'm saying? But I also look at some things in my life, and I think, you know what? If only I'd been a bit more wise. If only I hadn't acted in an immature, self-centered way, all those things could have been avoided. Do you hear what I'm saying? You look back and you think, I went through all that. Maybe it was an argument with somebody. Maybe, who knows what it might be. You look at it and you don't go, well, that trial came and I see God's hand in it and I went through it. You look at it and you think, I don't think I needed to go through that. It was my own selfishness or it was my own flesh, the work of the flesh, contentiousness, arrogance, pride. And my own pride produced this trial, this test. And I got really spanked by doing it. And all right, I've learned a lesson. But you know what? I don't think God wanted me to go through that. You all hear what I'm saying? So this is the trial that we're, not, that, that we're not ready for. That maybe arrogance puts us in. Or the work of the flesh. Or, or, or a, a premature trial. Or an unnecessary trial. That's what I like. It's a trial that's unnecessary. That we didn't need to go through. God's in his grace can turn everything to his good. And we're saying, Lord, lead us not to the time of testing or trial that's not from you. That's, you, that's not worth, that's not going to strengthen us. That's actually going to distract us. That's going to pull us away from you. That's going to keep me from, that's going to hold me back, not press me forward. But deliver us from the evil one. Don't need to go into that. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And it ends with victory. Just like many of the Psalms always end on a note of victory. So you pray your prayer and you remember who's got the power, who's got the kingdom, and who's got the glory. And so this model prayer that Jesus gives is a prayer that if we follow the principles of this, we know that we are praying prayer lines that will get a result. You never need to say, I don't know what to pray about again. You can take the Lord's Prayer. You can pray the Lord's Prayer. You can take principles of the Lord's Prayer. And as the Holy Spirit leads you, you can go into these different areas and themes and God 
will lead you. Let's stand together and close by saying the Lord's Prayer in the uh, traditional format. Everybody stand? Okay, let's, let's pray this from the heart together is our Father. Say with me, our Father, who art in, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, ever. Amen. God bless you all.